a seat if you would, and if you got a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 2, and we are starting a series today that we're calling More Than a Building, and we're going to look at what the church is, what the, what the church is to do, and today we're going to focus on who we are as the church, and just this question, are you really a part of the church of God? You're like, I don't even know exactly what that means. Hopefully you will by the, the end of the service today. But, uh, you know, I, I think we have a misconception, and this is where the title of uh, the sermon or the series comes from. We, we tend to think of the church as a meeting or as a building or as a gathering, a, 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 as a place. And, of course, the church gathering is, is an aspect of what it means to be the church. In the book of Acts, you see uh, three times they met together in the temple courts, and they met from house to house. You know, we, the way we apply that is we meet for corporate worship on Sunday mornings, then we gather in small groups. But a gathering uh, of people in and of itself is not the church. A building with a sign out in front that says, blank, blank, whatever church, is not necessarily uh, the church. Uh, you know, the, the church is not a building, but th this is the, the big idea of the message today. The church is not a building, but the church is people saved by Jesus. The church is not something we do, or it's not uh, somewhere we go. That's maybe aspects of it, but ultimately, the church is who we are. It's kind of where, why I wore my True Life shirt today. You know, don't go, just go to church. Be the church. It's, it's, it's who we are. And, you know, I think we know this, but it's, I mean, it's hard to express. I mean, uh, like if I'm talking to my family and say, you know, it's time to go to church. I mean, it's time to go to the church building. But I don't say it's time to go to the church building, uh, you know, every time I, I say that, even though that's what, maybe what I mean. But... Uh, you know, people ex kind of express this in funny ways sometimes. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me something like, well, I'm in church, so i got to tell the truth, uh, you know, I'd be doing well financially. <laughs> and I actually wish it worked out that way. It'd make pastoral counseling a whole lot easier, too, if, you know, I could count on people who were telling the truth. But... Um, but, it, but it's, you know, it's kind of silly. It's like, okay, I'm here, i got to deal the truth, but I can walk over to the cemetery so I can lie. I mean, you know, God's everywhere. <laughs> he sees and knows what we do. Uh, so, you know, I think we can think some funny things sometimes uh, about the church. But, you know, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The kind of images that, that Scripture gives for the church are things like the people of God, the family of God, where He's our Father, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, the bride of Christ, an army, those kind of things. When we talk about the church, we're talking about the universal church, which is just believers, period, wherever. Anybody who's saved is a part of the family of God. And so we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world Worshiping Jesus today. But then the Bible also pictures, you don't see anybody in the, in the New Testament who is disconnected from 
the fellowship of a local church. The actual tangible expression of the church is local churches where people gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, where uh, it's people who are saved, who are baptized, who there's biblical church leadership, we celebrate the ordinances, we preach the gospel, we love each other in the world, we serve each other in our community, uh, we go out and fulfill the Great Commission, we do missions, we worship, those kind of things. Uh, you know, that's the actual tangible expression of the church. Now, part of being the church is a phrase called, and this is really what we're talking about today, I'll give you a theological phrase, it's regenerate church membership. It's the idea that our goal is, if someone's actually a member of the church, that they're really saved. Because you can be a member of a church and go to hell. You can be a member of a church and, and, and be lost. If you study church history in the United States, part of the occasion or situation that the Great Awakening took place in was they had something going on called the Halfway Covenant where, uh, like, Children of church members could be baptized and be considered halfway a member of the church without being regenerated, uh, but that led to the decline of the church over time, and that was kind of the situation where the first great awakening took place in. You know, God doesn't have grandchildren, right? You can't get into heaven through your parents. I mean, I've had people, you know, ask them, you know, why do you believe you're going to heaven? Well, my mom's a Christian. You know, grandma was a Christian. I've been to church. Amer I'm an American. You know, all these kind of answers. But the church is made up of people who have been regenerated, have been saved, who, who personally know Jesus Christ. And that's part of the reason why uh, we do a membership class at True Life. It's why we ask people uh, as a part of going through the membership class to write out their testimony, to write out their understanding of the gospel. I mean, as the best of my memory, the, the Sonnemeyers were the first adult converts when we planted the church, and, and they got saved going through the membership class. That's part of uh, the, the idea of it. So, how would this uh, apply to us today? Well, uh, there's a church historian by the name of Nathan Finn who wrote this on Twitter a couple months ago. He said, I've spent most of my life in the Bible Belt. There are many things I appreciate about it. But as a Baptist who believes in the necessity of personal regeneration in a believer's church, one thing I don't love about the Bible Belt is southern fried cultural Christianity. He says, to be clear, my concerns about this phenomenon are evangelistic. I meet a lot of folks down here who think they are Christians because they are socially conservative, they think religion is a good thing, and they value the family. They make great co-workers and neighbors, but a lot of them have never trusted in Jesus Christ alone as their King and Savior. They are what my buddy Dean and Sarah calls, quote, unsaved Christians because they are attracted to certain broadly Christian values and virtues, but have not been born again. In other words, they're not really saved. It says, I long to see spiritual awakening come to the Bible Belt and for countless cultural Christians to become real believers. And I also long to see revival come to the parts of our nation 
that are more influenced by secularization or religious pluralism than by cultural Christianity. If you've been in the South long, you know what he's talking about, right? And so my question for us today is, are you truly saved, born again, regenerated? Do you know Jesus? I mean, however you want to say it, or are you just a good, moral, religious, conservative, churchy kind of person? I mean, is, is it head knowledge? Is it outward stuff? Or in your heart, do you know and are you truly following Christ? Are you truly a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Does your life show that change? Because Jesus said that we're known by our fruits. And if you would say, yes, I know Jesus, have you taken the first step of obedience to publicly confess your faith in believer's baptism? Because, again, you can't find somebody in the New Testament I mean, when you see people getting saved in the book of Acts, immediately or almost immediately, with complete consistency, you see them publicly confessing their faith through believers' baptism by immersion. So, let's go to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And really, that's where this this series is going to be based, kind of rooted and, and, and grounded. We're going to spend about eight weeks looking at some different aspects of what Dr. Luke here has to say in this summary statement about what a church is and what a church does. I mean, we'll look at some other scriptures as well, but uh, let's just go ahead and, and, and read this and, and remember the context. This is after uh, the, the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people got saved and baptized, you know, where God sent His Spirit to indwell the church, really the, the beginning of the church. And so it says here that with many other words, he, speaking of Peter, <coughs> testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So he's preaching the gospel. And then it says, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and about, in, in that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. It's people. There was 120 in the upper room. Now 3,000 people, uh, about 3,000 people get saved. So the church is around 3,100 people day one. That's amazing, right? When people say big churches are bad, I don't think they've ever read the Bible. Right? Size has no moral value attached to it. Um says, then they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Who's he adding to the church? Those who are being saved. The the church 
is made up of people. The church is made up of saved people. That's the point of this. And we'll, in the coming weeks, you know, look at what the church does. But again, the question is, are you truly a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Are you truly saved? Do you know Christ? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Are you going to heaven? There's lots of ways it could be asked. But the, the, the question is, do you have that settled in your heart according to the Word of God? All right, so th- there's three things then that, that I want to say about uh, you know, this big idea of that the church is not a building. The church is people who are saved by Jesus. Number one, we need to see that we are saved by Jesus alone through repentance and faith. We're saved by Jesus alone through repentance and faith. Christianity is Christ. It's about knowing Him, honoring Him, worshiping Him, following Him, obeying Him, serving Him, trusting Him. Christianity is Christ. Uh, Let's go back earlier in in, in this chapter and and, and look at the the message that Peter preached here and and just listen uh, to what, in, in a sense, is the first Christian sermon and, and I preached on this part of Acts chapter 2 back in April, and, and I called it the first and the only Christian sermon. Because this still is the message of the gospel today. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks, but the, you know, the church today, if we're teaching the Bible correctly, we're still proclaiming the message of the apostles that's unchanging, and that's where our authority is. But... Let's go back to verse 21, and if you remember the context, you know, God sends the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's evidence by them, uh, you know, speaking in languages that they'd never learned, so all the people there uh, could hear them. Some of the, the naysayers are accusing them of being drunk. Peter interprets their experience through the Word of God, uh, quotes prophecy from Joel, and I'm kind of picking up in the middle of that for time's sake in Acts 2.21. He says, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And and I think that's kind of his text that he's expounding here. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, of course, that's also quoted in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. So know that that's true for you today. If you are dead in your sins, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you can be saved, you can be forgiven Declared righteous in the sight of God. So here's what he says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. In other words, you killed him, God raised him from the dead. Not very long ago in our midst, I might add. You know, he's not preaching this years afterwards, thousands of miles away. He's preaching this less than two months later, right where it happened. Again, he goes back to Scripture. This is where David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, 
for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. He's quoting from the 16th Psalm. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. In other words, Jesus died for our sins. You crucified him. He was buried, but he was raised from the dead in accordance with the Old Testament Scripture, in accordance with our Bible, because that was the Bible at that time. And we saw him alive, and because he rose from the dead, it proves that he's the Messiah, that he's Lord, that he's God, that he's Christ, that, that he's the Savior. That's what he's saying. He says, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and now, now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And, and, and so basically that's saying that the Messiah, that Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, is God. You have the Lord speaking to the Lord. The only way to understand that is through the Trinity. And so he's saying Jesus is Lord. He's God. He died. He rose from the dead. And then kind of here's his summation. You know, here's his closing. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he's Lord, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead? And, and again, would you say, well, yeah, that's true, but it's just head knowledge? Or are you resting in him, relying on him, trusting in him and him alone? For your salvation? Are you, are you relying on Him to get you to heaven, if you want to say it that way? Or are you relying on Him to make you right with God and Him alone? Acts 4.12, the apostle said, There's salvation in no other, for there's no other name given among heaven, among men, whereby we must be saved. Salvation is only in the name of Jesus. That's the gospel. It's who Jesus is, and it's what he's done for us. Jesus is God, became a man, lived a perfect, sinless life that we failed to live, died the death that we deserve to die, bearing our sins, rising from the dead, ascended to heaven, exalted at the right hand of the Father, now ministering on our behalf. And the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Are you trusting Jesus alone? Are you relying on the grace of God alone? Have you received this gift of salvation? Well, you know, the question would be, well, how do you respond? Well, let's look at a few examples in, in the book of Acts. Here's, here's how Peter told them to respond in Acts 2, 37, 38. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
men and brethren, what shall we do? And when it says that when they were cut to the heart, and, and this is really the first step in getting saved, you've got to be convicted of your sin, broken over your sin, know that you're lost, know that you're helpless and hopeless. But listen, if that is going on in your life, if you feel the guilt, the weight, the burden of your sins today, know that that is a gift of God. Know that is the Holy Spirit uh, working in you. And then uh, confess you're a sinner and respond to the free gift of the gospel. He says, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, people get tripped up on this verse. It's like, does that mean I have to get saved to, or get baptized to be saved? And that's why we're going to look at a few different verses. But um, you know, I explained this back in April, but I'll just say it again briefly. If you go back to the original Greek, repent is second person plural. So that means what he's saying to this whole large crowd gathered here. He's saying in my southern ease, y'all repent. It's like all of you repent. In, in, response to the, in response to this message, turn from your sin and turn to God. And then be baptized is third person singular. So what he's saying, all of you repent, but then those of you who do repent, get baptized. And, and you understand, the apostles did not preach salvation through baptism. They did not preach baptism as a part of salvation. But based on what Jesus said in the Great Commission, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they had no conception of someone getting saved without getting baptized. And you know what? Nothing's changed with that today. There's like a fine line here. Okay? I want, listen to this closely. There's a fine line here, but it's important. Your baptism has nothing to do with you getting right with God. And the Bible tells us we're saved through faith alone, and if we're adding a work to it, we're not really saved. Um, you know, when I've discussed this with people who believe in this before, you know, I've gone to Romans 10, 9, and, and I said to a guy, okay, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you believe in your heart, that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. My question is, do you believe that someone is saved the moment that happens? Or if, like, they say, you know, I believe in Jesus, Jesus, you're my Lord, but I need to get baptized, and, you know, if, if something happened to them before they could get baptized, even if they were going to get baptized in a few minutes, would, would they be saved? Would they go to heaven? And his answer was no. And uh, what I said was, well, you can't be trusting Christ alone then. I mean, if, if that's not enough, uh, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth, we got a problem. You can't add anything to that. So, baptism doesn't save you, doesn't contribute to your salvation. But again, when you read the book of Acts, here, you look at uh, the people who got saved in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, Paul, Acts chapter 9, the people who got saved at Cornelius' house in, in Acts uh, chapter 10, uh, 
Lydia and the people with her in Acts chapter 16. Uh, the Philippian jailer and his family in Acts chapter 16. The disciples at Ephesus, and I'm sure I'm leaving some out. But without exception, when people got saved, they got baptized. Either immediately or very close to immediately. Because salvation is something that God does on the inside of us. But the way we confess it outwardly is uh, through believers' baptism by immersion, at least initially. So again, the apostles could not conceive of salvation apart from the uh, accompanying outward sign of someone being baptized. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Here again, he says repentance. Acts 8, 35 through 37, it says, uh, it's Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. It says, Philip opened his mouth, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. In other words, he just didn't baptize him. He had to confess his faith first because it says he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then... He baptized him. Acts 16, 30, 31. Philippian jailer. Uh, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? As far as I can recall, this is the only uh, time in the New Testament this question is asked in this wording. How, how am I saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. It's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They're not synonyms, but you can't have one without the other. If, you, if, you, if you're repenting, it's because you're believing. And if you're really believing, you're going to repent. Uh, the Bible word for faith, it, again, it's not just head knowledge. It implies commitment. It's head. It's heart. It's will. Trusting Christ. Loving Christ. Surrendering to Christ. Not just an outward thing. So salvation is in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. Us receiving him through repentance and faith. And then us confessing that through baptism. Tim Keller points out that the Buddha's final words were strive unceasingly. Strive unceasingly. But Jesus' final words were, it is finished. And I think in, in that couple of sentences, you have the difference between religion and the gospel encapsulated. Religion says, strive, try, work, and maybe you'll be good enough for God to accept you. The Bible teaches us that Jesus finished the work. He accomplished the work. And if we repent and trust in Him, we are forgiven, safe, secure in Him. Are you trusting in yourself? Or are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Listen, I don't care. It doesn't matter what you're like outwardly. We're all sinners. There may be different degrees of sin. You know, when I got, I got saved when I was nine, wasn't an axe murderer, hadn't joined the Hell's Angels yet, those kind of things. Yet, 
can't you tell? Uh, don't know about that phase. Um, but I was just as lost as somebody on death row. I was dead in my sins. Needed a Savior. And you know what? I need a Savior every day. Even forgiven and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I fall so far short. I could never earn my own salvation. If I had, I would have lost it in about 37 seconds. I am what I am by the grace of God. Are you secure resting in the grace of God? Trust in Christ alone. That's the gospel. Two, though, the result of salvation is living a changed life as a follower of Jesus. It's living a changed life as a follower of Jesus. Not to earn our salvation, but as the result of salvation, as the evidence of salvation. Because God's given us a new heart. Because we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I mean... Look, look again back at this passage, and starting in verse 42, how they live now. It says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They shared this common life together in the breaking of bread and in prayers. It says, fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. It says, now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. They took care of each other. They loved each other. They were generous and unselfish. It says, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they worshiped. They were united. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved because their passion was Jesus. Their passion was people meeting Jesus. They loved Him. They loved each other. They were radically different. I mean, think about it. These were... Jewish men and women. They, they grew up synagogue and temple, but now it's the church. They grew up observing the Sabbath, but now they're worshiping the resurrected Lord on Sunday. They grew up being taught strict monotheism. Now they're proclaiming a trinity. Uh, they grew up with the sacrificial system, but now they're observing uh, communion. Uh, you know, they've been taught that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Now they're proclaiming Him as the Messiah, being martyred for uh, proclaiming this. They were cowards a few weeks ago. They were like, kill us. Jesus is alive. We can't help but proclaim it. He transformed their lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Listen, if we're in Christ, we're not perfect, but we're different. We're new. We have a new purpose. We have a new passion. We have a new master. We, we have a new family. Our life is about different things. Our life can't be just centered in us. It's centered in Christ, and it's about each other, and it's about people meeting Jesus. Since you say that you became a Christian, has your life changed? I mean, think about it. If someone calls them, uh, him or herself a musician, we expect that they could play an instrument, right? I mean, we, we expect that they would work at it and, and practice and it be a priority and then gain some confidence. Like, Brett could call himself a musician and have a lot of credibility. 
I can call myself a musician. You'd be like, okay, well, yeah, what do you play? Right? If, if somebody could say, well, I'm an activist. What do they do for their cause? Somebody can say, you know, I'm an athlete. You think of someone's an, an, an athlete. Like Greg played college soccer. Well, I've seen him play. He has some skill. He obviously has trained, worked out a lot. You know, some guys, uh, you know, they're, they call themselves an athlete, but it means, you know, 40 years ago, 100 pounds ago, you know, they played ball when they were a kid. But, like, we don't really kind of just laugh at that. But then a lot of times in the church you say, well, I'm a Christian. It has nothing to do with your life. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I joined a church 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But it has nothing to do with your life. Does that fit with the picture of what we see in the New Testament? And, and, and maybe you lived it out for a long time and you need to come back to the Lord. But listen, if there's no fruit, there's no salvation. If there's no change, there's no regeneration. Does your life show that you know Christ? Their lives did. And then... The last thing I want you to see this morning is that the public confession of salvation is believer's baptism by immersion. You know, I, I gave you a bunch of examples from the book of Acts. I mean, read it from your, for yourself. But again, what do we see in this text today? Verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Why do we require believers' baptism by immersion for church membership at True Life? Well, the short answer would be Acts 2.41. They received his word, they were saved, and they were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Remember what Peter said, repent, be baptized. In, uh, we read it in verse 38. Here's what we believe about baptism at, at True Life. We believe in believers' baptism by immersion in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a symbolic act, which is the means by which a Christian publicly and unashamedly bears witness to his faith in and commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jennifer, you don't care. Go back to the beginning of that. Let's just kind of walk through that uh, quickly. So believers' baptism means you get saved, then you get baptized. By immersion means you get dunked. I mean, you're made fully wet. You say, why do we insist on that? Because and, and it's a secondary matter, and, and I get that. And I'm not saying if someone you know, is trusting Christ alone and has been sprinkled, they're Christian, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is what the Bible teaches. It's only a secondary matter because it's not a matter of salvation. There's not a lack of clarity. It's what the word means. It's what every example in the New Testament is, and it's the only thing that expresses the symbolism of baptism. I mean, what, what happens when, when somebody gets baptized? I mean, when, when, somebody, when we have somebody in the water like Tim was, and they take him under the water and come up out of the water, it, it, it's a picture of at least three things. It's a picture of all of someone's sins being washed away, 
It's a picture of someone being placed into the body of Christ, but it's ultimately a picture of being placed into Christ. It's you have died to your old person, been placed into Christ, and now you're raised up as a new person to walk in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. That's the symbolism of it. That's Romans 6. There's no water in Romans chapter 6, but this perfectly expresses the truth of what Romans chapter 6 is saying about our identity in Christ. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus said to do in Matthew chapter 28. It's a symbolic act. Again, there's no salvation in the water. Salvation is in the blood of Christ. So, it's just a symbol. But symbols are important. Right? And through this symbol, someone is confessing that they're in Christ. That they're a new person in Him. That they're living for Him. I mean, I can take my wedding ring off, lay it down here. I don't stop being married. I mean, this ring did not make me married. But I would say this ring is really important because of what it conveys. It's important to my survival because if I stopped wearing it, my wife would kill me. <laughs> because, I mean, li- listen to me. And, and I, I mean, I'm very non-sentimental, but this is one thing I, I'm very sentimental about. But, I mean, so if so, think about it. If somebody's not married and they're wearing a ring, that's just weird, right? Like, you're not going to get married that way. People are going to think you're weird. <laughs> but if somebody is married and they're not wearing a ring, it conveys something. What's the top two things it conveys, probably? Lack of, maybe I'm looking, right? Guy's out of town, on business, takes his wedding ring off, probably doesn't have the best motivation there. Or maybe it conveys, you know, you're having marriage problems or you're separated or something like that. This means something. doesn't make you married or not married, but it says a whole lot. Same thing's true with baptism. doesn't make you saved or not saved, but it says a whole lot. How do you call Jesus Lord and not take your first step of obedience? You see, symbols are powerful. I want to close with a a little video clip that I think is a great example of this. Don't take it as anything political. This may have been the last time we were united as a nation. But, you know, one of our kind of national symbols is uh, throwing out the first pitch at a baseball game. And in particular, the president throwing out the first pitch on opening day or in one of the World Series games. And it kind of symbolizes that, um, you know, baseball is a national pastime, that kind of thing. Some of you are like, man, baseball is so boring. You know, that, that means nothing to me. But this was a time that it meant a whole lot. This is October 2001. This is George Bush throwing out the first pitch before I think it was game three of the World Series in New York. 
This is George Bush throwing out the first pitch when the Secret Service tried to get him not to. When they said, we can't protect you. So, look at this. You don't think symbols mean something? Meant something to that crowd. You hear what they were chanting at the end? Why? Because here you had a man walking out with a little swag with his uh, chest puffed out and throwing a strike and saying, you want to take me out, take me out, but you're not going to take us out. We're not going to cower in fear. We're not going to run and hide. We're not going to step back. And, uh, you know, throwing a pitch in that context, conveyed that. In this context, someone getting baptized and publicly declaring Jesus, you're declaring, I'm not trusting in myself, I'm trusting in him. He saved me, he's changed me, I'm going to live for him, I'm not ashamed of him, I want you to know that, I want you to celebrate with me, I want you to rejoice with me, I want you to praise his name for his goodness and his sacrifice and his saving grace. That's what baptism is, it's not just a thing that we go through, it's about Jesus as well. Listen, we're, he saves us on the inside, but this is how we express it outwardly. So, again. The church is people, people saved by Jesus. Do you know Christ? Are you living for Christ? Have you followed him in believer's baptism? Go back to where Peter started. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.